Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. The Athletic. At Old Trafford yesterday, the gap between the two sides was stark. It's another blue derby day. Oh, Manchester City deserved that for this second half performance. And so did Manchester United. How much is Eric Ten Hag to blame? And is he right in saying United are moving in the right direction? The three games before, we won. And the spirit is, is very good. The fighting spirit is very good. So, yeah, I think we are... Uh, on the way up. Or with all the turmoil off the pitch going on at one of the world's biggest clubs, does he simply have an impossible job? I'm Ayoakim Malere. Welcome to the Athletic Football Podcast. In with us for this one, we have the Athletics, Adam Crafton and also Dan Sheldon as well. Manchester United have lost five of their last 10 Premier League matches. Um phew. What's going on? What's going on? They're they're losing a lot of matches and the games that they're winning, they just about deserve to win, if that. I mean, it's hard to really come up with a game this season apart from the Carabao Cup game against Crystal Palace's second team where United have actually played well. The reality is like if you keep just producing performances that leave you so vulnerable to a decision going your way here or there, then clearly there's a far bigger issue and really, you know, the most damning thing about the Manchester derby was that it went entirely as expected. City haven't been in brilliant form. You know, they just about got past Brighton uh, last week. They'd lost against Wolves. They'd lost against Newcastle. They'd lost against Arsenal. So this wasn't, you know, a Man City of kind of April last year. But United made them look like that. And yes, City were very good in the second half, but... You feel like half the teams in the league could make Man United look like that at the moment. Varane, Riggi on, on the bench. Are those decisions to do with form or fitness? Tactic. Do you want to tell us any more than that? Well, it's tactic. <laughs> OK, so Evans above Varane on tactic. Yes, uh, exactly. Dan, you were at the match yesterday. I don't know, from my perspective, I, I look at a starting lineup and you, you've got potentially one of the best defenders in the world not in that starting lineup. And Turnhag naturally said to a reporter, it's just tactics when he was sort of questioned as to why he played Maguire and, and, and Johnny Evans. What were your reactions when, when you saw that starting lineup? Yeah, I mean, I mean immediately you, you think, oh no, this is going to be a long afternoon when you see Maguire partnering Johnny Evans and going up against Erling Haaland. It's not exactly a recipe for success. I mean, after the game, say you're right to say you know, Ten Hag was quite spiky when he was asked after the game, can you explain that? And he's like, well, I already have explained it. Do I really need to do it again? And the journalist has kind of said, yes, please. And then he, you know, he, he went into an explanation of why with the way City build up and the way they pressed that it wasn't, you know, you can't play Varane and Maguire together because it just wouldn't have worked and you'd be kicking the ball long all the time. Now, I won't pretend to understand the nuances of that and you know whether that's that's right or wrong but it, it clearly he, he was clearly 
I don't want to say offended, but by that question, but you know, we certainly gave a, a fairly spiky sort of sarcastic response initially before kind of going into it. It, it clearly didn't work, but was it going to work anyway? I mean, even if Varane played, would there have been much of a difference? I'm not entirely sure. Yeah, I, th- I think I think I think there's a few things going on with that. I think one of them is that he's rarely played Varane and Maguire together. He seems to see it as one of those two will play on the right side of the centre of defence, and he seems to have a lot of confidence in Johnny Evans to be, I suppose, the passer from the back. I mean, this is a guy who, you know, with all due respect to Johnny Evans, like. I mean, it's kind of just emblematic, right, of whatever is happening at Man United at the moment. And, you know, you don't want to... He's a 35-year-old guy who's doing his best, but, like, he just shouldn't be starting Manchester derbies. And I think there's also a reality that, you know, the quiet part with Varane is that he can't play three games a week. Not sure if he can play two games a week, to be honest, at, at, at the moment. The slightly strange thing is he, 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 did, he did play, didn't he, on, against Copenhagen. So it looks there as though Ten Hag might have prioritised a home game against Copenhagen in the Champions League, thinking there's more risk to losing that game than perhaps the Manchester derby. Because I struggle to understand if he's resting Varane for a Carabao Cup game against Newcastle midweek. These are some of the decisions where Victor Lindelof at left back instead of Regulon, who's an actual left back. Mason Mount being on the bench after Ten Hag spends all summer saying how he's a complete midfielder. You know, you've got a day where you've got a midfielder out in Casemiro and he's got four other central midfielders on the pitch then. Eriksen, McTominay, Fernandes and Amrabat and there's no room for his complete midfielder. As many injuries, extenuating circumstances, ownership issues as you want to talk about, I think yesterday was just like a really, really bad day for the Manchester United manager because his decisions belie kind of rational explanations at the moment. The word that came out of a tweet that I saw from you is there's little, or a phrase I should say, there's little evidence of identity. I mean, this just boils down to that, really. Like, what is the identity? I mean, you look at a Manchester United last season where we looked at a string of results, you know, a cup, um, and you're thinking, oh, brilliant. Okay, we've got something here. Tentatively, those results were tentative. Um, and now we don't really see an evolution of that. No, and you then start to sort of rethink, you know, was some of that praise that he was getting last season actually, you know, a little bit over the top? I'm not sure. Because really, when you boil down last season, you know, the first couple of months was pretty poor. The final couple of months of the season was pretty poor. And there was this bit in the middle, kind of after the World Cup, up until the Carabao Cup final that was good. It also, you could say it relied on this kind of freak runner form that Rashford had at, at the time, they but even during that period, they weren't, you know, they weren't hitting teams for four and fives. It wasn't sensational. It was efficient. It was good. And but what you could see during that period was like the football was quite good. It wasn't sensational. It was quite good, and they had an idea and a unity and a spirit and a, and a bit of direction and a little bit of an aura started to surround the manager where you thought you could trust the decisions that were being made. But it feels like since, probably since the seven, was the seven nil against Liverpool after the Carabao Cup final? I think I think it was. Since then, he's not got very much right. Ten Hag seems to have changed his, his system over the summer. Last season, he was all about trying to get United towards a place where they were going to play a kind of more possession style of football, 
And this season, he keeps talking about being the best transition team. He said that pre-season, didn't he? Yeah. Right. That's what he keeps talking about. So he's changed his idea and it doesn't seem to be the idea that I can't imagine that when Eric Ten Hag was in a meeting with Manchester United pitching to get the job, that he was saying, I'm going to basically try and play the kind of football that Ole Gunnar Solskjaer played, this kind of, you know, Jamie Carragher's called it underdog football, maybe slightly better. Because at the moment, that's all he seems to be aspiring to do. And I don't know whether it's simply that he's got in there and after a year he's just thought, these lads can't do what I want them to do. But if you're a coach and you're basically saying, I can't get these guys any better towards my style of football, then you're on a bit of a hiding to nothing at that point. He's also spent. I mean, there are a lot of players in there with with his DNA, right? Um, you could look at Anthony. You could look at uh, Martinez. I mean, don't get me wrong. Uh, in fairness, United, Manchester United do have a, a fair few injuries at this moment in time. But you bring someone in like Mason Mount over the summer, who you've described as a fantastic midfielder, yet in a game where a player like that should be shining or showing their potential for this team, they're not making that starting lineup. That, for me, screams confusion. But Dan, let's let's, let's bring it back to sort of this sort of gulf um, between Manchester City and, and Manchester United. This would be the fourth Manchester United coach that Pep Guardiola's facing, being at Manchester City's Mourinho, Solskjaer, Ragnik and now, now, now Ten Hag. That golf is so much further now. If, if you look at the performances of yesterday, to say, for instance. Yeah, I mean, it, it certainly isn't getting any closer. Although you, you do look at last season and you think, well, United did somewhat close the gap by finishing third. But I always kind of had the view that, I don't want to say they were lucky last season to finish third, but they were fortunate in the sense that Liverpool had a bad season. I don't think anyone predicted Chelsea to be as bad as they were last season. Tottenham weren't particularly great either. You know, that, that's three teams that you'd normally expect to be kind of competing for those top four spots. You know, they just didn't perform. So United were able to take advantage of, take advantage of that. But, you know, if, if that was progression, I mean, I, I don't know what yesterday was. It was just the golf. City were just playing a different game of football. They just toyed with United. It was, I don't want to say embarrassing because that's probably too strong a word, but it... it no, well, it was, it was like, it was emasculating, I think, for United, you know, United and... I remember a very similar game. It was joint when David Moyes was there, when United lost 3-0 at home against Liverpool. And it was exactly the same in the kind of the last 15, 20 minutes. They were 3-0 down. Could have been more if the opponents could actually be bothered. You know, City yesterday, they were good. They could have made it a lot worse for United. And I don't think United would have resisted particularly. And it's quite clear, whatever the manager is trying to convey, which we're finding difficult, to understand from the outside, partially as well because he just doesn't communicate and sell a vision through the media to, to, to supporters. He's not a brilliant communicator. He's not got a huge amount of charm or things like that. He's a disciplinarian, which is fi- which is fine if you're winning and getting results. But he's not sat there in a press conference saying, this is what we're trying to do and this is how we're going to get there. And therefore, you're left with trying to make sense of what's on the pitch. And at the moment... There's very, very little there. And I think from the conversations I'm having with people at Manchester United, I don't see that his job is under immediate threat. But I think that is partially based on, I think it's based on three things. One, that, you know, clearly they think he's a good manager based on last season and his previous record at Ajax. But I think it's also based on some delusion. We've reported previously that Richard Arnold told an all-staff meeting, you know, in the middle of September that from what he could see, Man United are chasing down Man City and getting closer to them. You know, Dan's laugh Dan's laughing. You can't see you can't hear that on a podcast. 
But it's ridiculous, right? It's a ridiculous assertion because there's no evidence for it. And I think the thing which might ultimately end up sort of ironically sustaining Ten Hag is the extent to which he's led their recruitment, right? So you're kind of stuck with all these players that he's brought in and you're probably thinking, well, who better to get the most out of these players that he has selected for his vision, whatever that vision is, than the guy who's been behind that? And to kind of follow on from that, yesterday after the game, Ten Hag is saying, you know, we're on the way up. And it's just like, if you're a player, a United player, and you're sat in the dressing room and, you're man- and you've just been beaten in the way you've been beaten and your manager comes out and says, we're on the way up. I just, is anyone believing that? I, I just don't think... You're scratching your head, you're scratching your head thinking. Well, we just- it's, it's, it's also the point at which a manager starts saying those things. You can't, you can't fool, not only the players, but you can't fool fans, right? Like someone was sharing the kind of XG table that had Man United sort of bottom half of the table for this season. You look at the number of goals United have scored in the Premier League, I think it's 11 that they've scored. Like, it's way lower than teams like Villa and Brighton and Newcastle. Like, you can't con people. You can't come out and say like things are getting better when every, not only every available metric, like a simple eye test will tell you most things are getting quite a lot worse. And yeah, okay, right? Maybe things get better when a few players return to the starting lineup. But Luke Shaw started the season and was playing really badly. Lissandro Martinez, now you could say he was carrying an injury, but he wasn't in good form. Casemiro has had one of the weirdest starts to a season you can kind of imagine for a holding midfielder like just looks really out of his depth in terms of holding midfield but scoring goals um, I was just going to say does it worry you that those goals aren't coming from up top they're actually coming from behind I mean Karl Anka wrote about it recently but but do you remember we had the sort of a pre-season one where we were quite opt- optimistic about Man United but we, we all said there is a gap between the job description that uh, Rasmus Hoyland has as Manchester United's number nine, having to score a huge amount of goals and the reality of what he is, which is a really young, exciting player who is going to show you enough to get excited about, but it's going to be really, really hard for him to do what Manchester United need him to do. And unfortunately, like I have some sympathy for him. I know he's, he's scored a few, a couple in the Champions League and there's been sort of glimpses, but there's not been a Premier League goal yet. That was entirely predictable. And yet they managed to start the season put, you know, putting all their eggs in that basket. That's not his fault. But surely the manager and whoever's above him, you know, football director John Murtagh, should have seen that. You're listening to The Athletic Football Podcast with Ayo Akinwalere. Hi, I'm Ian Irving, host of Talk of the Devils, the Athletics podcast dedicated to Manchester United. Twice a week, I'm joined by Andy Mitten, Carl Anker and Laurie Whitwell as we bring you the very best insight from inside Old Trafford. You'll get all you need to know on transfers, tactical analysis, dare I say takeovers and much, much more as we follow United home and away. You're not getting this anywhere else. So search for Talk of the Devils and listen wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. Is Eric Ten Hag doing too much, Dan? 
let's say he's a good coach, right? He's good at the tactics. He's good at picking the players. But then does he need help? Can he do it on his own? Yeah, I think you can just look at the recruitment and, you know, and that's probably enough to say that they are doing what they can to help him. I think you can probably look at John Murta's role and his, his ability in isolation and kind of draw your own conclusions and have your own ideas about whether he's doing a, a good job or not. But I think if you just boil it down to, to what they're doing for the manager, they're spending a lot of money on players that, that he is targeting, right? It's not like he's saying, I want players X, Y, and Z, and they're going off to sign three other ones. I mean, the majority of the time they are giving him these players. So then the onus is then on him to coach those, make them better, win games and you know qualify for Europe or, or whatever. But I think Adam's absolutely right. Anyone could really see that Hoyland coming into this United team so young, you know, for the money he came in. And I mean, I spoke to Rasmus with other journalists in the mix zone after the Copenhagen game. And I mean, he's not shy. He's not, he doesn't hide away from the price tag. You know, he, you know, he said, I, you know, I'm worth it. I mean, that was, that was his kind of response to it. So, you know, if anyone can kind of thrive under that pressure, you would expect him to, but there must be times where he's just looking around that pitch thinking, what on earth is going on here? You know, there were loud boos at Old Trafford yesterday when Ten Hag took him off. Um, and then after the game, he said, you know, he was running himself into the ground. I mean, he was the only Man United player running. You know, th- there was a great example of Jack Grealish giving the ball away on the edge of United's penalty area really needlessly. And then 10, 20 seconds later, he's in the opposite corner of Old Trafford trying to win the ball back. I mean, you don't see United's wingers tracking back like that. I mean, you're lucky if you see them break into a, a mild walk, let alone a sprint to win the ball back. That makes a valid point. Like, you can reduce this sometimes to like just, you know, who's sprinting and who's working hardest and all those kind of things. But Man United have a problem in that their most highly paid players are not performing at the moment, right? So they're not performing. Or in some cases, they're just not being picked, right? Rafa Varane, not being picked. Bruno Fernandes is in really poor form. Marcus Rashford, you can, you can paint this one of two ways. Some people will paint it as... Here's a player that was in great form and all of a sudden he's, you know, he's lost confidence and that's reflecting. You can see the hesitation before he takes a shot or picks a final pass or final touch. But is it also, you know, he's just, he's just got a huge new contract. Is there a little bit of, you know, you've got that massive contract, slight easing off, even subconsciously. I don't like saying that about players because we don't, we don't know them well enough to know how that works. But that that's the kind of thing that you know. I was at Old Trafford a couple of weeks ago when they played Brentford, and he actually got taken off. That's what people were saying around me, whether it's right or wrong, and fair or unfair. And I think Ten Hag's approach to him at the moment seems to be: I'm just going to play him until he plays himself back into form. But you know, at the same time, you've then got other wingers that are also really out of form, and that's why they're struggling for they're, they're really struggling for for goals. But is there a sense? Do you think that? You know, we, we, you've just kind of gone through the players that are playing poorly, but they're playing poorly without consequence, right? They're still going to start the next games. Does that, in a way, diminish Ten Hag's authority, do you think, or not really? I think it does in the sense of, if you think back a year, right at the start of last season, Casemiro didn't come into the team until about seven weeks in because McTominay started the season quite well and Ten Hag was saying, no, you're going to have to earn your place in the team. You have the situation with Ronaldo where... He wasn't seen as contributing, therefore he wasn't in the team and therefore he was out. So there was this perception of consequence. This time, it does feel a bit now as though, has he got favourites? Are there some players he simply just doesn't trust to start games? Some players that he thinks, 
I can't, I just can't drop him because whoever I'm bringing in, I just can't rely on. It's interesting, the only game that they won comfortably this season against Crystal Palace at home in the Carabao Cup, Fernandez and Rashford didn't start. Now, it's really easy to say, oh yeah, Fernandez and Rashford are the problem. I imagine if you play five games without them, you'll soon find out they're probably not the problem in quite the way that people may think at the moment. But, you know, if you're Mason Mount, you're probably thinking, well, they've just spent 60, you know, 60 odd million on me. Fernandez isn't really turning up at the moment. Am I not worth a, a go as, as a number 10 for a few weeks or instead of McTominay or Ericsson? Or, th- th- those are the things that just are really kind of baffling at the moment. Let's talk about that 25% stake. Uh, regaining sporting control, you know, from, from Ineos. Um, could this be the, the, the little thing that Manchester United need? And I know you talked about this before, Adam, and being quietly optimistic, but something needs to change or is this just an impossible job? No, it's not, an imp- it's not an impossible job. It's, I think this season is probably, you're kind of already slightly into damage limitation. I, th- I think from a league position point of view, you're just thinking, can you catch Aston Villa, right? And just get that fifth place because I think the top four looks like the top four in whatever order that's going to be with City, Liverpool, Arsenal and Spurs. Um, so then it's the fifth place between Villa, Newcastle, Man United, Brighton, Chelsea, maybe if they get themselves together. In terms of that 25%, what does it mean? We don't really know yet because nobody's ta- nobody's, nobody's talking, right? We keep even being told it's not been fin- you know, finally agreed. There's still terms of it that still need to be thrashed out. We know what the expectation is that there's going to be this 25% uh, stake sold to, uh, to Ineos and Jim Ratcliffe. And we think that Dave Brailsford, who's the director of sport for Ineos, will have a role in steering whatever happens next. You hear about sporting directors like Paul Mitchell potentially being involved, new CEOs expected as well. But at this point, we are, you know, we're dealing with informed speculation, but there has to be. And I know that there, I know there is the intention of this, at least from the INEOS side, an intention of communicating what that vision is going to be. But it's not going to be necessarily what Man United fans want to hear. You know, Man United fans probably want to hear Jim Ratcliffe or Dave Brails would come in and say, "These effing Glazers have blown it for the last fifteen years, and we're here to put it right." Well, you can't say that if they've still got majority control of the club. So you're going to have a situation where Man United fans are going to have to just kind of hope, right, that the status quo isn't working. Maybe this will be slightly better. But you know, as we saw, as anyone who's observed Nice over the last few years will know, it took Ineos quite a while to actually get it right at Nice. Right? It got worse before it got better there. And if you're a Manchester United fan, you'll be hoping that they've learned lessons from that, which means they're more ready to go when they get into United, but it doesn't change the composition of Manchester United's squad, which is that in several key positions, they've got ageing players, they've got FFP limits, they owe, Dan did a story this weekend that they now owe, was it over 300 million, Dan, in player? Yeah, 317 million in outstanding transfer payments. I mean, it is incredible. I mean, never has a club needed the Saudi Pro League to come along and bail them out more than Manchester United do at the moment, right? If you think of those players like Casemiro, Varane, Anthony, Sancho, you're kind of just thinking like, well, come on now, Nasser, you know, come and sort it out, right? Neymar's got an injury because 
because uh, you have no confidence in Man United's ability to sell otherwise. There's no evidence for it. I'm just thinking, Dan, if, if you're a, an agent now and you've got a, a player, Man United, make an approach, are you telling your player to go to Manchester United? Yeah, you get paid, but are you going to improve as a player? Yeah, I don't think there's much evidence that you're going to go to United and, and improve as a player. I mean, what do you think Mason Mount would say if you asked him, do you think you've improved in your sort of first few months of the club? But I, United are still going to be able to sign you know, good players because they pay a lot of money. If you're an agent you know, and you've got kind of two offers on the table, one is from Man United and they're going to pay you, I don't know, £100,000 a week and Brighton are the other club and they're going to pay you £20,000 a week. From the outside, it's easy to say, well, you go to Brighton, you're, you're going to do well and improve. But then five times your salary if you go, go to the other place. I mean, I think we know what most people are going to pick. This is a paid advertisement from Better Health Therapy Online. Do you ever get that feeling that you need to get something off your chest? We all carry around different stresses, big and small. And when we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe place to release and discuss those thoughts and feelings and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. And if you're thinking of starting therapy, why not give BetterHelp a try? It's entirely online and it's designed to be convenient, flexible and suited to your schedule. All you need to do is fill out a brief questionnaire to match with a licensed therapist. And if things don't click, you can switch to someone new at any time with no additional charge. With over 1,000 therapists in the UK already, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. And because you listen to this podcast, you can get 10% off your first month of online therapy by heading to betterhelp.com slash athleticfootball. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P dot com slash athleticfootball with no spaces. You're listening to the Athletic Football Podcast with Io Akimolera. None of us here can still explain what Manchester United try to do in terms of how they play. He's been here now, what, nearly 18 months. We've seen Unai Emery come in at Aston Villa. We've seen Postacoglu come in now at Tottenham in a very short space of time. Now, that doesn't mean you win every week, but when you go to the games, you know what you're going to see. Jamie Carragher um, was speaking post-match, actually, about Villa and Spurs and, you know, saying how they've got this identity under Emery and Postacoglu. But I, I feel that like, it's a little unfair. I mean, look, Villa have a bad result. No one's going to come knocking the door down and saying, Emery has not done a great job. And the pressures at Manchester United are slightly different in comparison to Tottenham Hotspur, who haven't really won a trophy in, in, in recent years, and Aston Villa as well, right? Yeah, but that's kind of the job you take on, right? If you're trying to be manager, manager of Man United, like for all the sort of downsides of the scrutiny, the pressure, you're paid much more than you would be at Aston Villa or, or Tottenham. I do think it gives... It gives Ten Hag a problem when you have someone like Postacoglu basically just come in and have many similar issues, right? He's lost a big player in Harry Kane. People say, oh, Ten Hag didn't, wanted Harry Kane and he didn't get him. Well, Postacoglu had Harry Kane and he couldn't keep him. Tottenham have issues with the ownership. They have uh, issues with the with the chairman, Daniel Levy. They've got, an, you know, they had a disconnect. They had fans booing their own players in the stadium. And he's just come in and, Looks like he sorted it out in 10 games. Equally, let's see where they are in a year's time rather than 10 games' time. I think, you know, Villa as well is, is, is a good comparison. It's certainly true that, you know, the scrutiny at United, I think a, a lot of players there really struggle to deal with it and have done now for quite a long time. 
It was something that Ralph Rangnick noticed when he came in. He brought in a, a sports psychologist, I think, at the time. From what I could tell from that, it didn't really seem to work that way. So sometimes it's not even as easy as, you know, sit a player down with a sports psychologist and everything's going to sort itself out. That is one of the major challenges at United at the moment, getting a sense of perspective, both when they win and when they lose. So, you know, they win the Carabao Cup last year. All of a sudden it's Man United are back. Man United are back. They win a Manchester derby and they, you know, they beat Barcelona in the Europa League, sort of just about deservedly, you'd probably say. Derby, derby win was slightly fortunate. And it's, you know, Man United are on the way back because it feels like there's an entire ecosystem that is almost like commercially invested in Man United either being back or being in crisis. And that feeds these kind of extreme narratives all the time. And I think the players fall into it as well a little bit. You know, I think they fall into thinking, oh, we've won three games in a row against Brentford, Sheffield United and Copenhagen, despite playing pretty awfully. There's momentum. United are going to be back if they win the derby on Sunday. It just doesn't work like that. Look at a club like Arsenal, right? Are Arsenal back? They're on the way somewhere after sort of a year and a half, two years of really, really good, consistent performances. They're not back yet, right? and, And all of that kind of perspective, I think, gets lost quite often um, at United. I think it's an incredibly emotional club for better and worse at the moment. Yeah, but perspective, we could also say that, you know, running, what, 10 games into the season, it can potentially get better. It can, it can but like, what's the evidence? Like, what, what, what performance are you looking at and saying, if they do more of that, that, that will be better? What's the yardstick performance of what Man United can be at the moment? One for Dan. It's, it's kind of off topic, but still kind of links into to where United are at, at the moment. And after the game, Pep Guardiola made a really kind of salient point about, he was asked, you know, why is the, the gap now so big, do you think? I mean, did he say it as a dig? I don't know. But he said, you know, at, at, at City, you've got everyone down from the chairman all the way down to the players and all those senior positions in between. They're all on the same page, right? If they lose a game, there's no kind of panic and chaos and... While United would say maybe our structures and you know processes we have are, are better than they they have been in recent years, you still look at anything. Well, well, are they? Because as Adam says, you know, it, it is such an emotional club, right? Even kind of talking to people yesterday, it's like you know, let's see how we're feeling after the game. Again, it's just so emotional. It's like right, okay, well, if we lose, it's it's or into another crisis. If we win, it's as Adam says, oh, we're great. We've we found the recipe for success, and we're going to be able to turn this round and go on a run of winning 10 games but aside from beating a second string Crystal Palace team in the Carabao there's, there's been nothing for well all season to that I would be watching that thinking well I can really see where they're going with this and it's going to take time to develop but you can really see the end game I, I can't see that I think the club genuinely do think they're quite aligned at the moment between kind of Richard Ar- and Richard Arnold who looks likely to be leaving the club at least until the kind of 25% stake I think they thought they had an amazing summer Right? They thought they'd had a really, really good summer, one of their best transfer windows in years. As, by the way, they thought they'd had an amazing transfer window the year they signed Ronaldo, Varane and Sancho. And I, th- I don't think that many, so many fans would have ended the transfer window this summer thinking, God, United have had a bad one there. But for whatever reason, it's not materialised in the way that, that you expected. I mean, uh, to be fair, like, you wouldn't have predicted that Anana would be 
throwing goals in for the first five or six games of the season, right? Like that is a, there's a freak element of that. Mason Mount had an injury straight away. Hoyland came with an, with an injury. Amrabat came very late and had an injury. So there's been quirks to it that, that have made it unfortunate. But I think United genuinely do believe that over the past year, things have improved hugely. And their view seems to be that any kind of cultural change is going to have pain before it has progress. That's been their view for, you know, for quite a while now. And at some point, they maybe they'll look back on this and think, you know, we wrote, we wrote it out under a manager that we believe in. I just wonder whether the last four or five weeks is eroding any of that sort of unity. I think there's been, you know, there's been some really interesting stories around the involvement of Ten Hag's agent, how often he's around the stadium, the training ground. That to me is weird. Yeah, yeah, okay, club a manager's going to have an agent, but like, why, is, why does he need to be around the training ground? Is that because Ten Hag wants voices that are different to Man United's voices in, in some way, that he wants a different kind of advisor near him? I, I, don't, I, I don't really get it. And there is inevitably now also going to be competing agendas when you have a new minority shareholder coming in with football operations at, at that remit. You're going to have people that are hugely insecure about their jobs. You know, I know for a fact there's people at Manchester United who are really worried about their jobs. They want clarity over the takeover or, or whatever this is. Um, and they want clarity over, you know, what this football operations control means. Because if you have someone like Dave Railsford coming in with all his emphasis on marginal gains, then inevitably those people who work on that side of the club are going to be really, really anxious. I'm so interested on on this one for you guys both, actually, and, and I'm getting your feedback from it because you've got three different competitions coming up. League Cup against Newcastle, Fulham in the Premier League and the Champions League. Something has to change in the immediacy, right, to get something out of that. What is that? The situation in Manchester United isn't going to be solved even towards the end of the season, but something needs to change because these are key games, Champions League, League Cup, and we talk about building confidence, quote-unquote, on this journey. Something's got to change. What, what does that look like? Look, I mean, United have found a way to beat teams that are quite obviously worse than them, you know, on, on paper. Sort of, they have done that this season. So, and, and Fulham are pretty poor side this season. So, I really wouldn't be surprised United go there, win 1-0, 2-1, go to Copenhagen, just about scratch a win. Newcastle have had a lot of games recently. Their squad's quite stretched. So I, I wonder how hard Eddie Howe will go in that game and that might let United off the hook a little bit. But it's completely, I mean, it's unthinkable really for United to go out of that competition. And if you're at that point in the start of November where you're thinking we're in big trouble if we go out of the Carabao Cup, that means that, every, that most other things are going wrong. So what can, what can you change? I mean, you can change a couple of personnel. You could try and drop a one of, you know, the Fernandes or Rashford to try and have, as Dan says, that kind of level of accountability or something like that. But if you drop Rashford and then you go and lose two in a row, where do you go after that? That's what Ten Hag will be worried about. He'll be worried about thinking, oh, if I drop him, then maybe I lose him completely and he's a big character and you're going to drop your captain. That's a pretty big thing to do. And I think he'll also be concerned by, you know, just the general attitude, like in the last 10 minutes, of the derby yesterday where you've got, I mean, the Anthony one on, Do on Doku, can't believe he wasn't sent off. I mean, it's pathetic. If you're Garnacho, for example, or Mason Mount, 
and you see that from someone who gets quite a lot of minutes, you're thinking, why should I accept this? And maybe that's what Jaden Sancho thought as well. Remember him? What do you reckon, Dad? I, I think one of the, the, the points Adam did make him, you know, if you kind of just break it down, it's remarkable in the, in the sense that kind of just going back to that authority point that I raised, you wonder if Ten Hag is concerned about, well, if I drop Rashford or Fernandes, you know, will I lose that player? You know, if that were to be the case, then that's quite, in my opinion, that's quite something, right? I mean, do you think, Postacoglu is an easy example, right? That, you know, do you think he's concerned about losing a player if he drops them? But again, they're winning, so yeah. you know, he can do that and he can do it from a position of strength. He's got a window to do it with the Carabao Cup game, right? Because that's a game yeah. where you rest players conventionally anyway. So he's got an opportunity to do that. The question is, if it works, you know, if Man United go and beat Newcastle convincingly without one of those players or both of those players in the starting lineup, does he then do the same at Fulham, right? Because I think he did he did keep Palestri in the lineup, didn't he, after the Palace game, onto the next Palace game, but then they lost that and then he's not been seen since. And that's a bit what it's like, right? It's, oh, we're going to try this, but then oh, that's not worth, so he's out. You know, it's like, starts the season, Garnacho starting both games uh, against Wolves and Spurs. Wasn't very good, but I don't think he's started a Premier League game since, has he? So what does that do to that player's confidence? And it's all well and good for people saying, oh, since then he looks like he's a substitute player. Well, obviously he looks like a substitute player because you only ever see him as a substitute. And how is he meant to get better as a starting player if he only ever plays as a substitute? And maybe... This is all a little bit of, you know, you're putting your hope onto a bit like Hoyland, onto someone who's showing glimpses of something. But, I mean, at some point, you've, you've got to be trying these, these, different, these different things. I mean, it'll be really interesting to see what he does next week with the centre of defence. Because is he going to just keep, is Evans now like his number one left-sided player? Or is it Lindelof if, he's, if he brings Regulon back in? I mean, it would be pretty remarkable if you end up like both of Iran and Maguire on the bench. I, I don't, yeah, I'm not sure. Some of this stuff just is very unclear at the moment. All right, let's end it there. Feels like we'll be talking about Manchester United this time next week once again. Dan, Adam, thanks so much for your time. If you want more on Manchester United, make sure you tune into the Talk of the Devils podcast. And also, don't forget to rate and review us. We really appreciate it. All right, we'll see you soon. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to The Athletic Football Podcast. The producers were Adonis Pratsides and Guy Clark, with additional production by Mike Stavro and Jay Beale. The executive producer was A.D. Moorhead. To listen to other great Athletic Football Podcasts for free, search for The Athletic on Apple, Spotify and all the usual places. The Athletic Football Podcast is an Athletic Media Company production. The Athletic.